Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast, our journey together through the whole Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today we're in our season working through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to be covering the verses from Luke 9, verses 37 to 50. So greetings, friends, and in this episode we're going to delve into this intriguing three-part passage where we will explore together the profound lessons that Jesus imparts about faith, humility, and love here, and try and ask the question, why are we often so slow to learn? So thanks for being with me, and we'll launch off straight away. Bye for now. You know, every parent, every teacher, every pastor knows some people that are slow to learn something. Now, I'm not talking about someone who perhaps has a learning disability. I'm talking about that general problem where we're all slow to learn the lessons we really need to learn. Virtually all of us learn some things quite well, but other things, often the most important things, we're very slow to pick up. I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we're guilty of this. Sometimes, maybe a lot of the time. There are things we need to pick up quickly and there are things that aren't so important, things that we should just pick up as we go along. But it seems to me that the truth of being slow to learn becomes particularly important when it comes to spiritual things. Because rest assured friend, this does apply to the spiritual side of life as well. Now, as you've heard me say several times before, the biblical word that we see translated with this modern term disciple simply meant learner, like apprentice type thing. And we as disciples, as followers of Jesus, are meant to be learners of the spiritual truths that he's imparting. So clearly this is vital stuff. And what I'd like to do today is suggest that we Actually, if we're honest with ourselves, are in fact slow learners when it comes to certain, certainly, it seems to me, ironically, the most important spiritual truths. I'm certain in the most important areas of our life, it takes a little while for us to really get what's going on. And some people never get what is plainly taught within the Bible by Jesus. So that begs the question, why is it difficult? Why are we as human beings slow to learn? Well, maybe if we can identify those factors, those areas in our life, then we can maybe do something about it. We can expedite the process, speed up the process of learning the lessons, finding out the things that are really important in life and how we should deal with them and learn from them and apply them in our lives and do that a little bit faster. So to answer that question, let's read together. I'll start by reading the first 37 to 43 of Luke chapter 9, where we see this fascinating story of Jesus healing what is described as a demon-possessed boy. And it says this, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. 
A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. It's a fascinating passage of scripture, isn't it? For no other reason than it deals with the issue of what's called demonic possession, a controversial topic by anyone's imagination at the best of times. However, it begins in a very straightforward manner. In verse 37, it plainly says, The next day, simply says, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Now, you need to tie this in with what we looked at yesterday. You will recall that in the passage just prior to this, Jesus has been on top of a mountain, yes, but up there he was transfigured. So the point is that this is the same day as that amazing event. In fact, it's immediately after this thing called the Transfiguration. They've just come down and there's a great crowd waiting to meet them at the bottom of the mountain. And suddenly a man out of the crowd shouts out, I beg you, look at my son, heal him, he is my only child. Now what will become apparent in a minute is that the son who is ill is actually described as being demon-possessed and the father is imploring Jesus to heal his son of this affliction. The fact that he adds the phrase, my only sons, is there to emphasize just how desperate this situation was for this man. Because this was his only son meant that his whole family future would have been wrapped up in this young man. Now the passage goes on to tell us that the son was having convulsions. Now Mark helpfully records the same events for us, and when he does, he tells us a few little additional facts that are helpful. The fact that the son would do things like actually throw himself in the fire and throw himself into a body of water. So what we have here is a really a serious condition, isn't it? It's actually a life-threatening problem. And then that we hear the man say, I actually begged your disciples to cast him out, to cast it out, and they could not. Now you've got to think for a second, the disciples, well, which ones? Who tried? And when did they do that? Well, the answer is probably the fact, of course, that Jesus was up on the mountainside with Peter, James, and John. They were up there experiencing, witnessing this thing called the Transfiguration. So it may very well be referring to the remaining disciples, the guys left down below the mountain while they were away. So Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus, but the others disciples have remained at the bottom of the hill so to speak so they're probably the ones who already tried to deal with this situation now that's interesting when you pull the whole passage together and see the drift of what's going on here at any rate what's very clear is the remaining disciples whoever they were had not been able to deal and solve this problem and then we see Jesus's response in verse 31. And it's unusual because it seems a wider response than just to the question that he's been asked. He says this, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I put up with you? Then saying, bring your son here. Now this verse 
when you see it and read it for the first time, it kind of hits you a bit. It strikes you as being a little bit out of place. I mean, just uh, the verse just before said the disciples had tried and couldn't heal them. And then Jesus seems to just criticize this whole generation, everyone who's there. So what's going on and who are the faithless generation that he's talking about? Well, as you can imagine, as I've studied this, there are several interpretations of this. But I think the answer to this question is found when we read the parallel accounts. We've referred to Mark, but if we look at Matthew's account, again, there's a little more detail given. It says when Jesus answered, he said this, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. So this text from Matthew gives us the added information that although the disciples may be included in this, uh, what's described as a faithless generation, note he doesn't say you faithless disciples, he says in a wider context, you faithless generation. So let me make the su suggestion that clearly the primary people who were faithless in this message, yes, it may have included the disciples, but it's not just the disciples who couldn't cast out this, this demon. He's saying that the whole generation of Israel, perhaps even maybe meaning, and I think it's reasonable to say, the whole population of the world worldwide was faithless at that point. And I think the fairest way you can say it is Jesus is at most identifying and saying that the disciples in their failure to do this were part of that problem. In other words, he was identifying the fact that the world was fallen and that the disciples were being conformed to the world's standards. They had soaked up the spirit of the age. They were thinking like the people around them rather than focusing on their relationship to the Lord. And that's a warning to us all, isn't it, friends? They didn't trust the Lord to give them the power to deal with this situation as it was presented to them. At any rate, there's simply no question that if you consider Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account together, Jesus is tasking, is identifying that the disciples did not have enough faith to bind up, to, to deal with the situation. And it's wrapped up, bound up with the fact that they were identifying and were part of this entire faithless generation, as he describes it. And he says, just how long am I going to have to put up with this? There's an element of exasperation here, isn't it? He's sort of saying, if I can put it in the vernacular way where I grew up, oh, come on, guys, you numpties, you knuckleheads, you're such slow learners. I've been with you this whole, long, this whole time. How long have I got to keep doing these things? How long is it before you're really going to recognize who I am and trust in what I can do? And then he says, in my mind is a sense of exasperation mixed with compassion. So come on bring the son here. So the man brings the son. It's interesting to note that as he's approaching Jesus, the demon is described as throwing him down. Now the Greek word for throw, a little underplayed in our modern translation, is the word used for when a boxer hits someone and knocks them, prostrates them, knocks them on the ground, like a wrestler throwing someone on the ground, a smackdown, if you like. It's a violent toss, so to speak. He throws him down, and again then, of course, we see convulsions. 
And then Jesus' response is he rebukes the unclean spirit and immediately it just says he heals the child and gives him back to his father. So really simple, in a word, in a sentence, Jesus restores him, returns him, restored to health, back to his father. That's what happens, but what's the point of that? What does it mean? Why would Jesus say in verse 41, you faithless generation, accuses everybody, particularly the disciples, of being slow to learn? Well, the answer, I think, comes in what follows. And the second part of this passage, we see Jesus do this thing where he takes a segue and he predicts his death. Again, he's not the first time he's done this. Listen carefully. Listen carefully, Jesus said, to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So listen carefully, it says. Listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you. Literally translated, it says, let these words sink into your ears. That's a graphic expression, or what, isn't it? Even by today's standard. What he's saying is, hey, you guys are deaf. You're slow to hear. And, but he's talking about not the words, but the spiritual truth that lies behind the words. This is, of course, a dramatic way of saying, look, pay attention, people. He's, in the strongest manner, he's saying, you're deaf. Pay attention. I want you to think about this. I need you to think about this because you're just so slow to hear what I'm really saying. And the fact that you need to hear is, yes, all of these things are happening. All of these things are going on that prove I'm the Messiah. But the result of this means that very soon I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men and I'm going to be crucified. And that's what you need to get. This is very important. I'm about to go to Jerusalem, he says, and these things are going to happen to me there. But they didn't get it. And the reason they didn't get it is because they had preconceived ideas about how they thought the Messiah should be. They thought he was going to set up a kingdom. They certainly did not. Even now, in spite of the fact he said it several times, were not thinking or recognizing that he was going to die and be crucified. Again, even today, it is people's preconceived ideas about religion or what they believe or have heard that Jesus has said rather than what he really says that blocks them from receiving the spiritual truth of who he is. So their preconceived ideas on this day prevented them from understanding the spiritual truth that was standing right in front of them, being presented and demonstrated to them. They didn't get it. Adding, actually, not only didn't they get it and they didn't understand, but they were even afraid to ask what this all meant. What's that expression? There's no point, there's no such thing as a stupid question, just a stupid answer. If only they could have got over their sense of pride and with a little humility said, Lord, I don't quite get this yet. Anyway, my point is simply this. The point of this passage so far is the fact that it's pointing out that these guys, his disciples, even though they're at the center in the eye of the storm, they're slow to get it. They're slow to get it even when they see the fact that they can trust him to do these amazing things like uh, heal the sick, calm the storm, cast out demons. And they're slow to get it and they completely goes over their head when he says the culmination of all these events is going to lead to me actually being betrayed into the hands of men. Yes, they 
one half of the of the equation was recognizing that all of this proved that he was the Messiah. All of these miraculous things that was their purpose, but they needed to understand that this Messiah, the Messiah who had come, was the Messiah who was going to suffer and die at the hands of evil men, and they're slow, really slow, to learn and trust in God's master plan as being revealed here to them right in front of their very eyes. They're slow to trust and understand who the Lord really is and who hasn't been in that situation. So the question is, what about us? If we've come to this insight and we have this knowledge, what do we need to do to speed up the process of us learning spiritual truths in the future? And my suggestion is it's really simple for us today. We simply have to approach the Bible without preconceived ideas and believe what Jesus says in it. Read the Bible and trust what it says. Now, it's not always going to be easy, particularly when you're approaching the Old Testament passages, but we need to come to it with an open mind, but not open at both ends, sealed by the fact of the Holy Spirit as having accepted Christ as our Savior and allowing the passage then to be revealed. Uh, the Holy Spirit in its seal, the way I think of it in my mind, is, yeah, it's great to have an open mind, but it's no good that mind being open at both ends, so everything just pours through and out the other end. The Holy Spirit asks as a seal and a deposit and an interpreter of that truth if you approach the word in humility and openness. Okay, let's pick up and say what it says in verse 46. And it's a really surprising reaction of the disciples to what has been presented before them, this great act of humility in recognizing who he is. Let's see how they respond. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, stood a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who will be the greatest. So, friends, this is how they respond. A dispute arises amongst them as to which is the greatest. That's almost funny. Christ is teaching them about humility and they respond by having a debate about them who's going to be the greatest of them in the future. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And furthermore, Jesus has been talking about how he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be killed and all they're thinking about is who's going to be the greatest, most powerful in the future. Maybe even taking on board that much that he's not going to be around anymore but worrying about who's going to be the number one, the numero uno after he's gone. And then it tells us that Jesus, knowing their heart, Again, his response is to teach in a compassionate way, and he takes a little child and says to them, No, look, whoever receives a little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, of course, receives the Father who sent me. And who is the least among you will, in fact, be the one that will be the greatest. So he is showing them how to be the greatest, but not in any way like the way they imagined it. So, okay, there are two basic issues here in these closing verses. First, in verse 48, it's talking about receiving God by acting in this way, receiving him, receiving those who, in humility who are struggling in life is the way we receive God. I hope that's clear. And he does that by illustrating, by picking up a little child as his way of trying to communicate this 
truth, saying, as I receive this child, you're going to need to receive others in the same way. And by doing that, you receive me. And if you receive me, if you accept me as your savior and your mentor, the person that you follow in the way you live your life, by doing that, you're actually receiving God the Father. So that's one line of thought that's found here in these closing verses, verse 48. But the other that's going parallel to this as the one has to do with how is it then that we are measured, how is greatness measured? So somehow picking up this child has to deal with that debate also about what it means to be great. So what's going on here is very simply he's aligning greatness with humility. In other words, he's putting it against, of course, the opposite position, the polar position to that thing pride, that great sin of pride. So he's basically saying humility ultimately manifests itself in receiving not just Jesus in terms of an intellectual response, but receiving who he is by receiving and living your life in a similar way to him. And by you receiving others in the same spirit, accepting other people who are outside the kingdom of this time in order to draw them in under our care. You need to receive me just as I receive this child, he says. You see, Jesus is saying that True humility and greatness lies in our service of others. That's where true greatness sits. And it's evidenced by our operation and the way and our attitude towards the way we deal with other people, but particularly the people who are most insignificant in the societies in which we live. The test of loving service is that we receive people like that, damaged people, struggling people, receive them in the name of Christ. And the child you see in that society at that time was the least of people. It had no place of honor, no official position in the world at that time. In the eyes of the world, such people, and Jesus is using the illustration of the child, they did not matter at all. But in serving people like that, he's telling us we are in fact serving him, serving me, he said. And by serving me, you are serving God. So, Really, it's telling us if we're prepared to spend our life doing things that maybe the world will see as unimportant things, but only doing them with the motivation that they are important in the eyes of God, as we've seen modeled through the life and ministry of Christ. The world's not going to call that great, but we're going to be great in the eyes of God. That's the key. The use of children in that society of that time and the words he used is saying the important thing is to focus on those things that the world feels are unimportant, the people that the world feels unimportant, maybe even those who are helpless. Receiving is the emphasis here. It's a spirit of living the Christian life with that sense of, well, good old-fashioned humility, recognizing then in all these people we see, in all the suffering we see, in all these tragic circumstances, we can see and say there, but for the grace of God go I. I'm here to tell you that there's more pride in every one of us than we probably recognize. And pride is obviously the main problem in life. The sin of pride is the core of humanity's downfall. And what we need in response to that, well, it makes total sense, doesn't it, is simply a little humility. 
In other words, instead of thinking as yourself great in any way or the potential for greatness in any way, like these disciples were doing, we should be thinking ourselves very simply as servants of God. Instead of thinking how good or great we are at stuff, we should simply think of ourselves as humble servants. One of the finest statements of humility I have read very recently came from Rick Warren. I'm sure many of you have heard of him, and he said this, and I quote, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. What they needed to do, the disciples on that day, was think a little bit less of themselves, didn't they? They thought to be thinking more about receiving other people. And the question is, okay, that's what they were doing. This is how, what Jesus, the insight he gives them. How did they respond to that? Do you think they finally got it? Well, let's look at the final verses. Verses 49 and 50. Master, John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. So did they get it? Had they got it? Not even close friends. What's the connection with all this? Jesus has just been saying, receive little ones in my name. And what they do, and remember, he's just cast out a demon. And they say, well, we've just seen someone cast out a demon. He was doing it in your name. But because he wasn't part of our group, our inner circle, if you like, we forbid him and didn't receive him and didn't allow him in. He was doing things in your name. Things that we couldn't ironically do, but they didn't receive him. They actually says, we forbid him. We did not receive him. And, and they ultimately didn't receive him because he wasn't part of their apostolic gang, if you like. They literally were saying, he's not great like we thought we were. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't forbid him. For he who is not against us is on our side. Keep in mind, the critical part of this is that this guy was doing it in his name, in Jesus' name. He was crediting the Lord for what was happening and what occurred. So they were with us. He was doing it, and he was doing it in his name. And by the way, it's important to notice that very specifically, this person or these people were doing the very thing that the disciples had failed to do successfully. They were casting out demons. Talk about being ironic. These guys, our guys, the disciples, couldn't cast out demons. And here's someone that's able to do it and do it in Jesus' name. And they don't allow him into the group. In fact, they cast him out and say, he's not part of us. He's not one of us. Talk about being unloving. Talk about a lack of humility. These people are doing it in the Lord's name. They're doing supernatural stuff in the Lord's name. And yet they throw him out. Let me quote to you what Warren Wisby said about this. He said, He gave his apostles authority over Satan, yet they were too weak to cast out a demon. And feeding the 5,000, Jesus gave them an example of compassion, yet they persisted in manifesting selfishness and lack of love. He clearly taught what it meant to follow him, yet the volunteers, his disciples, turned out to be me first disciples. What a warning to us all, really, isn't it? So there are three little episodes that have gone here in the passage we looked at today. In the first episode, we saw him cast out a demon, and then prior to that, he calls the people a faithless generation for not being able to move in the power of the Spirit, pointing out that they're slow to get it. They don't hear. They're deaf to what he's trying to teach them. 
And that truth is run through and played out throughout the whole passage. But he doesn't leave them in that place. He's He says, you're slow to gain insight, and this is what you need to do, and how to gain it, and that is to trust God explicitly. And the second thing he says, also to get it, if you're really going to get this, you need to think of yourselves humbly. And their response to that is to go to, and see someone else who's doing things in the name of the Lord, things they can't do, and saying, well, they're not part of us. Treating even those types of people in an unloving matter. So he says, you know what? You're very, very slow to get spiritual truths. And I think we all have to look at this passage and ask ourselves, do we have some of these attitudes ourselves here? In this message, we see this group of guys being deaf to what? God is really saying to what Jesus is really teaching. They're being slow to trust him in the sense that they're seeing it, believing in it, but not actually applying it in their own lives. And they're not even thinking of themselves humbly, and they're not even responding to people lovingly. Think about that. How little of this is actually sticking, if you like. How little of it is being taken in and applied in their life. Now, the first thing I would say in closing is it has all to do with the relationship of the person to the Lord. It is that type of relationship and the wrong type of relationship, one that's not based in humility, that will today still make us slow to learn. Let me add, if we don't think of ourselves as humble servants, well, we tend not to do that. Shall we? we tend to think of ourselves, maybe the easiest way to describe it, we tend to think of it, yeah, I'm a Christian. That means that I'm not as bad as other people anymore. And instead of receiving people, we tend to cast them aside, particularly people who are difficult, problematic, or who are living lives seeped in sin. So let me end by suggesting some way that you can turn this all around for yourself if you find that you yourself are slow to learn, slow to hear, and slow to apply. It may be your problem is you're just not trusting the Lord, and you're not trusting the Lord because you don't think of yourselves properly, which of course leads to the fact that then you don't see other people through the correct lens, you don't approach people with a perspective of humility and the solution to all these problems simply lie there. It's humility over pride. Maybe understanding this, really understanding this, should dramatically affect our lives because it should dramatically affect the way we think of ourselves. Because if we think of ourselves properly, then the result is we will by nature be able to treat other people properly as well. And I think that's the profound spiritual truth that lies here. And in doing that, God will really be able to use us and work us and develop spiritual maturity within it. One of the commentaries I, led, I read on this concluded with a story, and I'd like to tell you about it. It was about a, a story about a nurse told by a doctor. He said that he came to work, he was a mature doctor, and he came to work in a hospital, and there was a nurse that worked on the ward that he was on who had been there for 20 years. For 20 years, single-handedly, she had served that ward and its patients with care. In his commentary, he said, I marveled at her patience, her fortitude, and her cheerfulness. She was never too tired to rise at night for an urgent call 
or unwilling to cover a colleague's work when a crisis occurred. But he noted that she was main staff, what we call not what we call in the UK bank staff. And he looked at what she earned and compared it to the other nurses on the ward. And he thought, you know what, this woman's salary is inadequate. And he thought one night, particularly hard shift, when they sat down together after a strenuous, difficult period of dealing with the situation, he said to this nurse, why have you never complained? Why have you never pointed out that your colleagues are earning more than you? And he added the expression, you know, God knows you're worth it. And do you know what he said she said? She simply said, well, if God knows I'm worth it, that's all that matters to me. I think that story hits the nail right on the head on how we should live our lives to get things right. I can't help but be challenged by the fact that within our country at the minute, our doctors and our nurses and others are on strike for more money. I believe, of course, that nurses, doctors, medical professions should be paid and paid well. But it seems to me growing up in the 1960s, such an idea of nurses and doctors going on strike would have seemed unimaginable to the people I know who felt called to work in the NHS at that time. This nurse in this story, she viewed herself in relationship to God, not in any way to her relationship and in no way compared herself to other people. She just viewed herself as a tireless servant for the Lord. And that's a great way to live your life and to view yourself. That way will deal with any issue of potential pride arising. That way will deal with any issue of potential jealousy arriving. That way will deal with any potential frustration arising. It deals with the fact, the reality of the human condition that we are, in fact, slow to learn. But you know what? This passage tells me God understands that and he wants to help us and he wants to help us speed up that process. And we're doing that together. We're doing it together today as we spend time with his word. So thank you for being with me today. That's it for today, friends. I'll leave it there. Reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting it, and that way you'll uh, you'll get it. Every single episode will appear in wherever your podcast provider is. There's free resources available. If you're not seeing them on where you get your podcast at the minute, then you can follow a link to the Bible Project at Buzzsprout.com, where it's hosted, and you'll find links to places where you can access those resources. So as we reflect on these timeless teachings, my prayer, my desire is that we all, through doing what we're doing, are able to overcome our slowness to learn, our spiritual sluggishness, and we can trust in God. God who embodies humility and love and who Jesus exemplified in his life. Remember, in God's eyes, our true greatness lies in not 
in anything that the world views as important, but in simply serving others with love and humility and recognizing just who exactly we are before a holy God. So thank you for joining me today in our explanation of Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 50. And stay tuned for more I Trust Enriching episodes. And until next time, may your heart be open and transformed by the power of God's word and the profound truths found therein. Bye-bye for now.